Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, discuss gold, Bitcoin, and where to find investment safety in a world seemingly beset by political and economic ills. Morning, everybody, and welcome to uh, another edition of Word on the Street. With me in the kitchen of investment truth today, our very own chef de cuisine, William Hobbs. He's going to be with me to dip his tasting spoon into the week's news stories and tell us what is sweet and what is sour. First of all, an amuse-bouche rabbit. That was, that was difficult to work through, so I'm glad there are some smiles. Good. So rabbits. I want to talk about valuation, Will. And over the last week or so, it was slightly longer than a week ago, but a rabbit was sold for over $90 million. And I'm interested to know what might make that rabbit worth $90 million. And the reason I say that is because in a week that we have also seen a guitar collection sold for over $20 million, with one piece in particular at $3.5 million. This links to the valuation of things like Bitcoin, and more prosaically, companies like Apple. So we will connect all of those things together, but what makes things worth what they are? Well, that's a a big question for a Friday morning. Um, It's difficult. I mean, in the case of sort of collectibles, um, like the ones you're describing, you know, the the Coons Rabbit and the, um, you know, the Gilmore Guitars and stuff like that, price is simply a function of what the other side of the trade will play, what the buyer will pay, if you think about it, because none of these things, and to your point about Bitcoin and gold, you know, none of these things throw off cash flows or dividends or coupons, which are generally the kind of, uh, you know, the, the rewards from ownership, um, which allow us to get our teeth into something from a valuation perspective. So you're an equity analyst by training. That's mm-hmm. your background. Just run us very quickly through how a normal established company that, for example, n- not, not even necessarily one that pays a dividend, but a cash flow generative company, how do you value that? just in a nutshell? Well, uh, difficult to say in a nutshell. I don't want to oversimplify. But essentially what people tend to do is they forecast those cash flows out into the future. Um, They extrapolate to a certain extent and then they uh, put in a fade. And what they tend to do is they try and um, add up all of those cash flows uh, and make them relevant to a present scenario. So what you do is you discount it, um, trying to take into account all of the uncertainty and opportunity cost uh, that the future future holds. It's difficult. There's not a sort of, you know, there's art and science in there. Um, But at least you've got something to kind of anchor to. And that's not what you have in the case of gold, Bitcoin, and a lot of collectibles. Ah, so you've you've flipped me on. So I can understand with rabbits and guitars, mm-hmm. I mean, the guitars more so than the rabbits might have, have some practical utility. Gold throws off no cash mm-hmm. flow. Bitcoin throws off no cash flow. In the sense with gold, you could argue that there's finite supply and not getting into the technicalities of Bitcoin specifically, but there is no reason why there shouldn't be an infinite supply of Bitcoin. So why are those two asset classes, and I'm thinking specifically about those because we have seen the, let's call it the flight to quality trade. We've seen a big bump in the price of gold recently. Mm -hmm. We've also seen a resurgence in the price of 
Bitcoin. Is there any connection between those two and what drives the value? So, so I mean, the point about Bitcoin, uh, I'm going to correct you there because there is a finite supply of Bitcoin. That's part of the algorithm in a sense. So that's, that's one of the attractions about gold, gold and Bitcoin in a sense. To those who are, those investors who are suspicious of the kind of newfangled monetary uh, sort of contrivances uh, of the post-crisis era, you know, quantitative easing, those kind of things, um, that fixed supply is an attractive idea to them, essentially, that it can't be kind of debased by the authorities of the, of the modern era. But when we look to sort of valuing these things, there's a couple of things. I mean, momentum is one thing. Um, and I'll, I'll go to Warren Buffett, you know, one of the most overquoted men uh, of all time, one of the most overquoted people of all time. Um, he was asked to comment on gold's popularity a while back. And he said the rising price uh, on its own generated additional buying enthusiasm, uh, attracting purchasers who see the, pro- the rise as validating an investment thesis. Now, as bandwagons uh, and bandwagon investors join any party, they create their own truth for a while. And I think that's quite a good description of what happens in these circumstances. As prices rise, people get more interested. Uh, They think, oh, I'd like a piece of that. And you start to attract more people. The other thing which I think is important uh, in this context for particularly Bitcoin and gold potentially, um, is that gold has in the past exhibited a patchy-ish relationship uh, with real interest rates. Now, if you think about it, real bond yields, if you're trying to compare safe havens, for instance, uh, real bond yields, positive real bond yields, represent the opportunity cost of holding a yieldless asset like gold or Bitcoin. So as the real yield available on you know, uh, treasuries, the ultimate safe haven, uh, rises, you should find that the attraction of yieldless momentum assets like gold and Bitcoin wanes a little bit. Now, it's not, like I say, an entirely consistent relationship, but what you have found with the recent price surges is that that has happened um, in the context of real bond yields collapsing all over the world. Um, It may be coincidence, but I think probably there's maybe a bit more cause in there. When we're speaking to individual investors, Mm -hmm. it used to be the case, and I recall this, like 10 years ago, the the trade was that gold was a good insurance it was the flight to quality it was the it was the asset that you ran to if everything else was mm. failing then we had a bit of a dislocation because lots of lots of instruments became available for people to speculate on it and there was a dislocation of gold's value as a safe haven asset mm-hmm. is there anything that we can read into the escalation of the price now and infer something about markets so my question is is the gold price now portentous of some sort of stock market collapse coming? Yeah, I mean, I, I would not read that much into it. I mean, gold has provided, has been an inconsistent friend in darker times. I think when you would say, you know, if you're looking for a safe haven, what you tend to want is something that performs well when equity markets are going through darker times. Gold sometimes has, uh, but history tells you it's been a very inconsistent friend. Like I say, if you're looking for that much more uh, faithful friend in that situation, you're, you're really looking at T-bills. Uh, short-term uh, US debt, you know, has performed very consistently during that time frame. Um, that would be the, the, the sort of the rough. Now, another thing that's cropped up in the news this week, which would affect every client who is invested anywhere, mm. um, because it's the world's largest company. So the world's largest company has just lost its chief designer, mm-hmm. or Johnny Ive has said that he's going to be stepping down from Apple, or they're remaining affiliated to the company through association with a new venture that he's setting up. Is this the beginning of the end for Apple, or is there something on the horizon for them, do you think? Well, always difficult to say. I mean, as you know, I'm not a single, uh, I don't, personally, I'm not an expert in uh, covering uh, individual companies. 
I used to try, but uh, happily I leave that sort of expertise to other people now. I think one of the interesting thing from a from a macro investor like ourselves, so we're looking from the, at the world from a top down perspective, you know, and trying to allocate on sectors and countries and so on. But there are some interesting studies about something called top dog problems. Um, now, what this refers to, this, there was some academics, um, uh, Arnott and Wu, who looked a while ago um, at the performance of the largest company by market capitalization in each stock market, in each sector within the G8 region um, between 1982 and 2011. Now, they found that the global top dog, um, you know, which has been Apple for a while, it beats the uh, global uh, capitalization weighted stock market only 5% of the time. So it's basically an argument against ETFs, essentially. It's one of the arguments people marshal against, you know, passive indices, uh, index tracking, um, because do you want the largest holding in your portfolio uh, to have a 95% chance of underperforming over the ensuing 10 years? Now, it's a small sample size. It's not, you know, you don't want to sort of infer too much, but certainly, you know, you can I, you can imagine that being the largest company in the world tends to attract a bit more regulatory and competitive pressures, um, and that can mean um, sort of underperformance in the in the suing term. I, I would argue that it is a, it is a, you know one of the arguments that you use for active management. Passive indices are great for getting you exposure overall to the world's markets, and we can get that very cheaply. But it does sort of show that there is value to be had from uh, finding people who can can select companies underneath that will outperform the wider index. Are there any lessons that we can take away with regard to diversification, the benefits of diversion and single stock risk from this? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you've just, you know, as with all of these things, we don't know who is going to come up with the next most exciting technology and who's going to benefit most from it uh, at any given day. We can make certain guesses, but we don't want to have too much confidence in those guesses, to be honest. We want to be uh, diversified and give ourselves as much chance as capturing uh, all the amazing innovations that are going on in the world at the moment and the benefits from and them. Another story which has come out again in, in the last 24 hours or so, and that is the the closure of the Ford plant in Bridge End. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of redundancies are going to be made there. Um, we've talked in the past on this podcast about the advent of electric vehicles and the shift in industry dynamics, the benefits of technology and trade, etc., I don't want to get into the, the nuance of Ford particularly, but is there anything that we should be reading about the closure of that plant into the whole Brexit story, the benefits of the UK economy from a manufacturing perspective, or do you think that this is just a one-off which is uh, identifiable to that specific company? Well, it's, it's, this is very difficult, and, I, and I, you know, obviously it's a very difficult situation for those you know, directly affected, of course. Um, but from the auto, in terms of our ability to diagnose it, um, the, um, the auto industry is going through you know, a sea change. Insiders on the industry themselves are pointing out, or some are suggesting, that within you know, a couple of decades, maybe less, you are, you know, most, autonom- most travel in cities is going to be done through autonomous nodes. You know, without the ability, no frills, no point in being a BMW or a Ford or anything like that, just, you know, very plain. A now, to B. A to B, exactly. And so that does, that creates obviously a significant problem for your um, for your auto industry. And if there's huge consolidation coming, that seems to be some of the things. And so you're finding some very strange mix-ups, you know, BMW and Mercedes who've hated each other for a century, I think you're working together. So that's all part of the context for the auto industry. What you would say with regards to the UK specifically and the auto industry is that uh, Car manufacturing globally has been one of those sectors which has really kind of its supply chain has exploded 
following the ICT revolution. You know, the advances in communication and more reliably being able to communicate with other parts of the world has allowed them to push their supply chain everywhere to where costs are lowest and they can you know, manufacture most effectively. They would be one of the sectors that would be quite affected by a rise in tariffs, in a sense. And you are potentially chipping away at your attraction as a place to... Uh, run your supply chain through uh, with regards to sort of, you know, the potential for higher tariffs um, following Brexit. So it's a more balanced story, I guess. But I wouldn't get too carried away with what's going on in the UK. The UK is, it looks okay at the moment. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily, you know, we don't want to sort of call it Brexit or not or anything. We don't want to get it, tag it too heavily, I think. So would it be fair to conclude then that if you had $90 million to invest, that possibly a well-diversified multi-asset portfolio might be a better way to go than buying a single pseudo-aluminium bunny to put in your porch? I think that's probably the case over time, yes. Excellent. Well, you heard it here. That's the word on the street. Thank you for joining us and enjoy a very warm weekend. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.